Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. There's a scene in the 1995 movie Clueless where the main character, Cher, is walking down the hallway of her high school while chatting on a cell phone with her best friend, Dion. A few moments later, Dion merges into the same hallway, and they hang up their phones while seamlessly continuing their conversation as they walk to their next class. I distinctly remember that most of us watching this in the theater laughed, or at the very least chuckled, at the absurdity of the scene. But that was in 1995. Because when you watch this scene today, There's nothing funny or absurd about it at all. After all, nowadays, having a cell phone in high school is pretty normal. Heck, in New York City, where middle school kids and some elementary school kids walk or commute to school by themselves, it's not unusual for fourth or fifth graders to have their own cell phones. Of course, this has led to the need for rules about phone use during school hours, which seems pretty reasonable when we're talking about cultivating an effective learning environment for elementary, middle, and high school students. But I've also heard stories of college professors banning phones and laptops in classes, which I would probably be a little resentful of if I had had a phone in college or if my laptop wasn't this 10-pound beast that barely fit into my backpack and whose battery wouldn't last through class anyway. So is there any actual data to suggest that our learning is compromised when devices are allowed in class? Or is this just one of those things that teachers like to complain about because it looks like students are distracted at times. With finals right around the corner, now seemed like a good time to explore this a little bit further. We're all guilty of multitasking from time to time, but we're not actually wired to be able to do two things at once, so there are some costs associated with trying to split our attention. One has to do with the selection effect. For instance, whenever both of my kids try to talk to me at the same time, and usually to explain why the other one is being the world's worst sibling, my brain just kind of locks up, and I end up having no idea what's happening in either story. The other cost of divided attention is known as the switching effect. This is what happens when I'm trying to bake cookies while helping my daughter write her paper on South America's ecosystems. Every time I switch back and forth between cooking and homework, there are brief moments where I'm neither cooking nor helping. 
And it also takes me a little time to reorient myself to the recipe and make sure I'm not confusing baking powder with baking soda or teaspoons with tablespoons as I transition back from trying to create perfectly square text boxes in Google Docs. When people raise concerns about devices in the classroom, I think it's usually related to these first two issues. But there's also a potential third cost to divided attention, which might actually be more important, and that's retention. The details are a little beyond the scope of this article, but the dual system hypothesis suggests that memory is comprised of two systems involving different parts of the brain, one of which is involved in perception and recognition, called the instrumental system, and the other with long-term retention of action sequences or responses, known as the habit system. The implication of all this is that it's possible to understand a new concept pretty well today as information passes through the instrumental system, but not be able to recall that information weeks or months later if it hasn't been processed sufficiently by the habit system. So a pair of researchers at Rutgers University decided to take a closer look. 118 university students, all enrolled in a cognitive psych class, were included in this study. In half of the class meetings, laptops and phones were banned. In the other half, laptops and phones were allowed. The students' knowledge was tested over the course of the semester in three ways. Through multiple-choice questions presented during class, through unit exams that were given about every month or so, and a cumulative final exam given at the end of the semester. So how did the students do? Well, the in-class quiz scores were pretty much the same whether it was a devices banned day or devices allowed day, which suggests that phones and laptops don't have much of an effect on students' comprehension of class material. So maybe devices aren't as disruptive as people like to say they are? Well, not necessarily because when the researchers looked at the unit exams in which students were tested on material spanning about a month's worth of lectures, there was a slight but statistically significant difference between students' recall of material covered on devices allowed days and devices banned days, where students performed better on questions from lectures in which devices were banned. And when researchers looked at the final exam, which included material from the entire semester of lectures and reading, the difference was even more pronounced. Basically, the difference in performance between questions from the devices banned lectures and devices allowed lectures was about half a letter grade, where students were able to correctly answer 87% of the questions from the lectures on days when devices were banned, but only 80% of the questions from devices allowed lectures. So this is actually kind of interesting because it means that in the short term, Having your phones out during class probably won't affect your ability to understand whatever new material your teacher is teaching in that moment. So it totally seems that your phone or laptop isn't interfering with your learning. But the study findings suggest that the consequences of divided attention only become apparent weeks or months later, when your recall ability is really being tested, where it starts to matter that the material wasn't processed quite as deeply as it could have been when originally presented to you. So there's also an interesting side note. The researchers also looked at the exam and final performance of students who didn't use their devices during class even on those days when they were permitted to. And even their performance took a hit as well. Why is that? Well, the researchers think that it's probably because being surrounded by other people tapping away on their laptops, messaging other classmates, or watching random videos 
can make for a more distracting learning environment. So does this mean that laptops in the classroom are evil and bad and the worst thing ever for every student? Well, no, probably not. I'm sure some students' use of laptops is perfectly productive and supports their learning process. But sometimes we can think that we're being productive even when we're not. So if your quiz and exam performance this semester hasn't been quite as stellar as you would have hoped, this could be a good time to experiment with keeping your phone in your bag during class. And if you do use a laptop in class, maybe turn off the Wi-Fi so there's less temptation to wander off. Because while the latest cat versus cucumber compilation might be way more attention grabbing than whatever your professor is teaching at the moment, only one of them is going to be relevant when it's time to take the final. And one last note before wrapping up for today. You've probably heard musicians talk about the importance of performance practice and how useful it can be to do mock auditions to prepare for the real thing. Which makes total sense, but have you ever wondered what a mock audition was supposed to look like? As in, who should you play for? Is it okay to play for non-musicians, like family members? Or does it really need to be a musician? Are they worth doing, even if they don't feel like the real thing? What do we do when different people give us contradictory feedback? How far in advance should you be doing mocks? And how many mocks should we be doing anyway? Whether you're new to mocks or looking for new ways to maximize the usefulness of your mocks, Met Opera percussionist Rob Knopper and I will be doing a live webinar this Thursday, April 18th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, where we will walk you through an 11-point checklist for effective confidence-building mock auditions. To sign up, go to bulletproofmusician.com blog and look for the green webinar registration banner at the top of the screen.